This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Psychoanalysis listeners. This is Tracy Morgan, your intrepid host. I know I haven't been on the air in a while, and I've gotten some complaints, but here I am. I'm back. I found a book that really um, engaged me. And in the post-Trump period, um, it was very hard to read uh, once he got into office uh, and it was real. Um, I found it too depressing to, um, I couldn't focus. I think a lot of us couldn't focus. So I looked at a lot of books that were coming my way and this book captured my attention. So today we have the pleasure of speaking with Todd McGowan, Um, who teaches theory and film at the University of Vermont. And we'll be discussing uh, his book, Capitalism and Desire, The Psychic Cost of Free Markets, which is published by Columbia University Press, 2016. Um, So welcome, Todd, to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Hi, Tracy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, So uh, the first question we ask... uh, pretty much every author we speak to is um, to the degree that you can know what motivated you (laughs) to write this book. um, What made you prompted you to write the book? Well, I think I've always had this feeling that, you know, students would say to me and other people, obviously a lot of people say this, that capitalism is human nature. Mm -hmm. And that always struck me as wrong, but I didn't have a sense of why it might be wrong or, or why, or actually more why it, why it seems so right. And so as I was sort of working out certain things and theoretically with psychoanalysis, I I started to see these links between like the structure of our desire and the way that capitalism, uh, way that capitalism works. Sorry about that. (laughs) That's that's part of how it works. (laughs) uh, That's that's exactly how it works. Yeah. Uh, And so that, that basically then led me. And then I started to read like all the, major figures of political economy and capitalist economics. And in fact, they were the ones that really helped inform what my analysis of capitalism much more than, uh, you know, Marx and the Marxist tradition. So that's, that's basically how it started. And then it just kind of, I don't know, it got, and then it just sort of went from there. I mean, I didn't even envision it first, excuse me, first as a book, but more as just a idea that I was working through. And then it just kind of, it kind of developed on its own after that. And the next thing you knew. <laughs> the next thing I knew, yeah. <laughs> you, had, you had a book. Um, uh, yeah. So I found this book very uh, gratifying. So as I thought of that, I was like, I'm definitely going to screw this interview up, you know, because um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just a little too, a little too gratified. But I, I, uh, in our email exchange, I think I wrote, like, I can read three pages and then I'm like, full, you know, and right. so it took me a long time. It's not, an, you know, an ex, a very long book, you know, it's 200 and what, 40 like pages or something. Yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I was, um, I was very, um, satiated and one of your, um, reviewers, um, said almost every page brings a startling insight. 
Um, and I, I would agree. Um, and it's, it's kind of a, do you know the term, the unthought known? Is that a, I do know that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, the, the book is, um, yeah, we don't want to say common sense, right? But like, there is a sense of like, I knew that. I knew no, that. I, I actually don't think that. I, I hope that that's true. I, I almost think. I mean, I try to write in a very, you know, straightforward way, and I, I feel like a lot of the things that I say, they're kind of. I, I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe commonsensical isn't the right word, but I feel like they kind of. At least it's it it, it, it it's readily, it makes ready sense once you once you think about it. I think. Yeah, I mean that that was sort of the, the the pleasure of like oh yeah 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 it's also a pleasure like for people who are um uh not very familiar um with the work of Lacan this book I think um also reads as kind of a wonderful um not quite an introduction but there is a sense of you're applying um so many um, sort of basic tried and true <laughs> Lacan's like, who is she calling tried and true? But anyway, yeah. tried and true sort of Lacanian concepts um, yeah. uh, in order to bring uh, to, to, to make your, your argument. So I want to begin with the book's last sentence. And okay. and because uh, I think it it's. Um, it, it describes precisely the project um, in, all, in the 240 some odd pages of the book. Quote, until we accept that the satisfaction of loss is our driving motive, we will remain hostages of an economy of enrichment, end quote. Um, so since not all listeners know their Lacan, and um, uh, I want to ask if you could begin to tell us why is loss so important? And how does loss relate to capitalism? Sure. Um, you know, for Lacan, the, the, I, I think his this is to me the main – he says one place, the objet A is the thing that I invented. It's the only thing that I invented. And I, I think that notion, objet A, or lost object, is so crucial because his idea is that we don't start out desiring anything. Instead, we have to ha- undergo some initial – loss, which isn't, which is actually a loss of, there's nothing that we've lost, but some sense of loss in order to then sort of kickstart ourselves as desiring. And the problem is that then we get this idea that there's some object out there that we're pursuing that actually is what we've lost. And so for Lacan, that's the, that's the, the sort of fundamental illusion or problem that, that subjectivity has to constantly wrestle with. And then I think it's clear then how or to me, it was clear how capitalism sort of grafts itself right on top of that, because uh, on top of that structure, because it constantly is presenting us with new objects that seem like they will be the thing. Right. Uh, but they never are. Yeah. Right. And so dissatisfaction is um, is our lot um, to to a great degree. And yet, you know, patience people who aren't patients <laughs> rail against that. Um, the idea that um, we don't want to be dissatisfied. Um, I wanted to ask you, since you used a, a pretty overtly uh, Lacanian frame for your understanding of capitalism, you also have a critique of, um, of, ob- of sort of object relations thinking. Yeah. But I wanted to ask, you know, I was I was trying to wrap my mind around like, well, what if you had used, let's say, Klein and the paranoid schizoid, depressive position, projective identification? What what would have been 
I don't know. I don't know that you can predict what the outcome was. You wrote what you wrote, but but you didn't yeah. write that. Can you yeah, talk to I us did. about why? Yeah, I mean, I guess I wanted to. I mean, this is for better or worse. I was I was interested in the 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 structure of capitalism, and it seemed like. Lacan for me was, I mean, for one thing, that's where sort of where I come from. So I, I really couldn't have done anything else. Uh, I mean, it's what I believe. So, but, but I think it also fit, it's more, it fit more the, the capitalist structure where, but I actually, I think in terms of talking about the way that, uh, capitalism tends to, it's, it's particular way of, offering up fantasies does tends to produce paranoia. I think Klein is pretty helpful for that. So uh, other, in other, I think I could have gone other ways and talked about the way capitalism produced certain kinds of psyches. And then I think a more relational approach would have been, would have probably been maybe better even. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I could, I could, so I could see that to, to a degree. I mean, I thought that the Lacanian frame really was um, was convincing because uh, you know the way in which um, when you I think you have an example of you know you drive the car out of the lot or you you buy an apartment and immediately that that feeling of remorse uh, of yeah it's incredible I just it's funny because my my son's gonna hate me for telling this about him but he he just bought a he just got a, a something delivered in the mail today and, and he was so excited about it. <laughs> And once he opened it, it was just, it was like, you know, he tried to keep his excitement up, but it was, it was something fundamentally devastating about it. So I just going to talk about the book now, but I mean, I felt bad for him. But. Right. He unwrapped it and was like, is that all there is? That's all it was. Yeah. yeah. In fact, it was it's, like it's a, a, it's a, a t- website. It's... You paid $50 and got all these mystery gifts. Right. And so, then, you know, it's like this great marketing scheme. It's, it's genius. It's genius. Yeah. But, you know, the, there's actually, I mean, I'm not a Kleinian, but there's an old, uh, just, just, just to round it out with the Klein, there's an old Kleinian joke of uh, Joyce McDougall's, which she, <laughs> she said to me, you know why Christmas is so disappointing? And I was like, yeah, it's a good question. Why is Christmas so disappointing? And she said, you don't get mommy's uh, breasts or daddy's penis under the tree. So there's actually... Um, the difference, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that they're, that yeah. they could be under the tree and well, and then, then all would be, would be lost and all would be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Lost and okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think, yeah. I think part of what you suggest is, you know, why we don't, uh, one of the sort of subtexts of the book, I think is why we don't love socialism. Um, yeah. And I don't know if I if that's just my own reading, um, but um, I was wondering. You know, people are not drawn to socialism in part. I think you argue because a world where we have it all, uh, a world yeah. without lack as an idea, ultimately um, repels us, um, like a lover who's a little too nice or something. Um, um, so. You do try. You do move in the direction of suggesting um, alternative, not economies, but all. But but what would transform capitalism, um, or what would I, I don't even know. Like you don't really so much have an approach. It's like we're going and then we're going to smash the state. You know, there's. Right. <coughs> uh, so can you talk to us about what you think would 
I think transform, destabilize, change um, capitalism. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess one of the wagers of what I was doing was that I feel like uh, I think you're exactly right. What you say about socialism is exactly right. I think it has there's a lot to overcome in terms of the way that we desire, mm-hmm. you know, to to that, that there's something a little too uh, stable about socialism, I think, in its ideal. But uh, I do th- I feel like that there's you know, like that in order for any kind of social change to happen, I feel like there has to be a change in the psyche of the of the people of every of, of people, you know, basically. So I, I, I guess that was my idea that I mean, I, 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 I think all kinds of collective acts are are good and important. But I also think they have to be driven not by the, some kind of ideal of of, you know, having it all, but but sort of an acceptance of the way in which lack is is essential to what to to really our our satisfaction and so the idea of overcoming that with some kind of perfect society is that's always going to be you know problematic as a as a even as an ideal i think yeah um i think you you write that should we have abundance somewhere in the book um we will still experience ourselves as lacking subjects in an abundant world because no amount of abundance will provide the missing lost object. Now, right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, can you unpack that for um, a listener who, I mean, there will be listeners to this uh, podcast who are not um, schooled so much in psychoanalysis, but are like interested in, you know, a, crit- a critique of capitalism that uses psychoanalysis. Yeah. What is, this missing lost object. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. So it's just, it's, it, it's, it's, it's an object of nothing basically. So the, but the, the point is, I think that, that the more, I mean, when we, when we're, I mean, this happens to, to anyone that's ever been confronted with abundance, the more you're confronted with a lot of, the, the more you recognize that something's missing. And so basically my idea was that, that capitalism sort of is psychically comforting to us because it, it presents the world as scarce. Like scarcity is a, is a, is an a priori of the, of the capital, like the, the, the capital system. If, the, if there wasn't scarcity, we, we wouldn't need it. Mm-hmm. And so my idea was that it kind of protects us from the, from abundance. And so if we think about abundance, then we, then we recognize the necessity of some kind of, of something lacking. It doesn't, I mean, Object. I, when I say lost object, I understand that's a little misleading, and it makes it seem like there's something lost. But it's just, it's just some. They're just. All it means really is a lack in my psychic experience, my psychic, you know, perspective. Right, and that no matter the, I think what you're also arguing is that you know, no matter the, you know, the the way in which wealth is distributed, um, this is sort of a, a foundational in. Uh, I, I think you're you're arguing that um, this lack is is foundational for any uh, subject that uses language. I mean, that's correct. That's correct. That's it's, that's why it's. I, I don't think it's just like oh, they're so greedy. Why people that have so much right. are still driven to you know have more and more? Because I think they you really the more you have, the more you really feel like oh, I'm I'm just lacking something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the more you're, you're the more you're really confronted with it. The more abundance you have, the more you are, you confront this ongoing um, lack. Now, yeah. you use the word trauma um, 
throughout the book. In fact, I created a list of like, you know, kind of like Raymond Williams, like keywords, you know, and um, I don't know where they are. It's like really, really, I'm serious, nine pages of questions. It's not normal um, for me. Um, but, so uh, I wanted to ask, you know, um, the way the way in which you're using the word trauma, because within psychoanalysis and outside of it, it's an extraordinarily popular popular word. But right. you you argue that um, satisfaction um, uh, is dissatisfaction is not traumatic, but satisfaction is is yeah yeah yeah. I mean, I, I'm using traumatic in a not in the sense of like I you know lived through an earthquake or something, but in the sense of a, a structural psychic trauma. So there's it's like for me, every time you have to confront that the object. The, the sort of non-existence of your object, that's the, that's traumatic. That's the, that's the sort of, for me, the basic trauma of subjectivity. Mm-hmm. So that's all, that's what I mean by it. I, I think that it probably, you know, I don't know, maybe that's, I'm not trying to minimize other traumas that are, but I think that's sort of the basic trauma that's even at the heart of all other ones. Right. I, uh, yeah. And I, I think that it's sort of, I just wanted to try and, and tease that out because I, I think that a person who is reading within the more popular parlance of trauma, um, it might be, um, might be confused. But there's also, um, I don't know if you know the work of the recently deceased, um, Muriel Dimon, who's a feminist psychoanalyst. And, um, she wrote somewhere about working with a, a patient who had, um, was it, you know, had been incested as a child and that there was a trauma of too muchness. And she described her need to have a lover who was always, um, at a distance and always not quite, uh, not quite available in order for her to control, um, the abundance, uh, or the, you know, or, or the too muchness of it all. Um, so that I was, thinking about that, that there is sort of still a, a connection there. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. There's a connection to actual lived traumas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you don't begin as many critics of, um, who use psychoanal- psychoanalytic thinking to sort of, you know, have, have a, uh, um, to spend some time thinking about capitalism, like Marcusa or, or Norman Brown, you're not thinking about repression as the problem. Yeah. Um, you're, Thinking much more of like the darker, um, uh, you know, for the later, uh, more pessimistic um, Freud than leading into Lacan. Um, can you talk to us about your, you know, the, your the, your sort of take on uh, why uh, the repetition compulsion and and not uh, repression in your thinking about capitalism? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, part of it was that it seemed to. I mean. Part of it was that 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 you know it seemed that ca- if if it was repression, then capitalism wasn't doing. I mean, it seemed to do pretty well when you know sexual desire is 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 given a relative free reign. So that just empirically, it seemed that the repressive reading of capitalism didn't make sense. And I think you know part of it is I think Marcuse and and Brown and others are and and Fromm to some extent are 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 more products of when they 
they, I'm not saying I'm not a product of what I wrote, but that there, you know, that that a certain understanding of Freud was maybe more in vogue then. And but also capitalism was different. And I think, you know, having lived through the sort of sexual revolution, I feel like that's it, it really shows that that had, if not zero, it had like a negative impact on uh, resistance or, or, or hostile opposition to capitalism. You know, it like it was not only was it integrated, it was like it, it helped things, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> every, sell a car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, 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 I got off the, I went just in new Orleans the, a few days ago, I got off the plane and, and the first, I saw all these billboards for men's clubs. strength, And I'm like, well, you know, that's on a billboard. It's just, but, but you know, that's just what, I mean, that's the that becomes just one more area. In fact, that I think I say somewhere that the sexual object is in some way the model for the commodity. So I guess for I almost feel like what we're seeing is not some anomaly within the capitalist within development of capitalism. It's sort of it's sort of come to it's the fruition that was all of something that was always there. Right. I, I, yeah, you, I mean, you make that argument in the book very well. Um, you have a chapter um, on uh, love, right? Um, what's, yeah. What's yeah. The, yeah and it, it really struck me. I thought of it as sort of the, um, the uh, er chapter in the book, because as you're reading about desire and dissatisfaction and it's not right and it could be better and um, I'm going to trade it in. And, um, but, but you have interesting things um to say about uh, romance um, and love uh, and how they're how they I don't know if it's how they function under capitalism that's a little too top down but but can you talk to us about uh, just talk to us about that chapter I I think yeah. that that chapter should be published in like I don't know like Vogue I mean almost, <laughs> yeah. that's really nice of you thanks uh, I, I would love to be published in Vogue. That would be pretty cool. <laughs> but my, my mom would think I was finally a success. Uh, uh, no, I mean, I, could you tolerate funny. that? <laughs> What's that? I'm sorry. Uh, uh, so what's funny about that, you saying that is uh, numerous people have said to me, oh, that's the re- that's the chapter I really like. That's the one that really, and I have to admit that it's my least favorite chapter <laughs> because I feel like, it's a little too like the distinction between romance and love is a little too facile. And, and, and I don't think, but okay. But I, I mean, I'm still invested in it. I still believe it, but I, I, I fear that that's the, and maybe it's because it, but I, I think other people have said to me what you just said, that it's kind of the urge. It's like the real chapter where everything comes together. So, but anyway, so well, no, nothing's worse than a lover the, you know, the experience of like, I'm not satisfied by my lover. Right. And, and you're saying I'm not satisfied. We're not satisfied by our commodities. And it's in this chapter that you, you know, you, you move toward making the argument, particularly with like, you know, the you know, dating websites and Tinder and this, and that, you know, that, that we're, you know, love for sale. Like at some level we're selling ourselves. Absolutely. I, I think, and what's what's to me the worst thing about that, I guess, is that love. I, I mean, I, I I believe in love. Like, I think I think love is a, maybe the most radical experience that we can have as subjects. So the the betrayal of that. And this is where I think maybe I agree with you that it may be the, the most important chapter, because the betrayal of that is the betrayal of what's 
maybe most important in life. So when, just as you say, like, I think I was quoting talking heads, like when love is for sale, then, then all of a sudden, you know, we, we lose touch with that. The ability, and I think what's great about love is the way in which we don't know what the other person, how they're going to respond to our gesture of openness, you know, and that's, that's the, to me, the, the best thing. And then, and then, but when they're turned into, you know, a uh, object to be accumulated, then that's totally, that's totally lost. Right. Right. And, yeah. Uh, and you also, I mean, you know, you, I don't know. I, I, I thought you were pretty kind of romantic in like a nice way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in that chapter, um, you know, you write, uh, love depends, love depends on the embrace of what is undesirable in the object. And, um, I, I thought that that was the most romantic, um, it's a very, I don't know, a very loving and romantic statement at the same time. But that's, you know, my my sense of of what, uh, you know, what what matters in in intimacy is the way in which we take what is, you know, I think you give examples of extremely, you know, I don't know, people that smell terrible, et cetera, and, and we find our we find our way. And you actually have a footnote in the book about finding somebody's a lover's a something a, a visual you know, anomaly or something that you were drawn to and then it begins to change. Yeah. And there's yeah. that moment, you know, that, yeah. that moment. Yeah. Yeah. That moment. I, I remember it very well. And then, you know, the, I think I say in the footnote, the problem was I wasn't a very courageous guy. So it took me two years to finally break up with her. <laughs> well, you were, well, um, you were hoping that you were hoping that you would fall in love again with that facial anomaly. Well, I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know. I hope. Yeah, maybe that's a nice reading of it. That's. Uh, <laughs> I hope she's not listening to this because she would she would recognize herself. I oh think. well. Oh yeah. well. I'm sure she's already read the love chapter. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it goes. Looking for the answer. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is? How would you describe in the book? Um, you use the word um, sa- sort of satisfaction contra pleasure. Right. Yeah. I get I had a sense of satisfaction is one thing. Pleasure, if I read you correctly, um is is another. Um is am I right? Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I think. I mean, I would say satisfaction is this is tied to the rep- sort of repetitive experience of sort of going through the process of dealing, engaging with the that object that is inaccessible to us. That lost object, and then pleasure is, I think, is this fleeting thing that we have when we're actually we feel like we're experiencing the object, but it's always it's like the moment that you, you know, purchase the car. It's the moment that you get the package. It's the it. So for me, pleasure is necessarily completely. It, 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 there's never a moment where uh, now of pleasure. You know, it's like at one minute it's coming, then it's going. It's never there. Interesting, because um, what what came to my mind um, as I was reading was the difference between um, I treat uh, some couples, and I notice, you know, um, that there's a satisfaction. It's interesting. I, I always see it as, do you want pleasure or, or satisfaction? That there's a satisfaction in being right, but there's no pleasure. Oh. You know, like there's yeah. a, the drive, you know, there's that old joke, like what is, you know, what does a woman want more than an orgasm? I don't know if you've heard this, but like 
She wants, she'd rather, instead of having an orgasm, she'd, she'd rather be right. Right. It's kind of, this. yeah. And, and I kept thinking that throughout the book, I was like, so satisfaction is, I, I don't know. I, it, it just, it, it, I wasn't sure if I like wanted pleasure or satisfaction. At the yeah. End. I mean, I think <laughs> I, it, just from your, the way you put it, I would just say I've reversed those terms. So okay. you know, that joke. So I just, I, I mean, I'm not wedded to the terms in any way. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, I just, that's just the terms I, I mean, Lacan's term would be jouissance or right. enjoyment. And I, 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 I was just trying not to be jargony really. And, and that's why I avoided it. But I don't yeah. feel like there's any, I have no investment in the terminology. Okay. Got it. I mean, yeah, the book is really not, it's not a jargony book. You're an, a really terrific writer, um, <laughs> super clear, super like the, and the argument um, just builds and builds. And I, I see, I fear cause I, I have so many pages of questions that I can't, I, I, right. I feel like a little, you know, helpless and like we're um, failing that no, not sure. showing how it, how it, it, it builds. Um, so the audience will just have to read the book. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, you have a fascinating um, argument about valuing the means. Yeah. Uh, and as opposed to the, you know, the, the way we value the ends and here at new books in psychoanalysis, it's all about the means like, okay, we, we do this, you know, we eventually come up with an interview and you know, people can listen to it, but I'm not there when they listen to it. We right. don't make any money. And it's really the process of moving, uh, of, 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 of me for us. It's more, it's more about means. I wanted you to tell us what, what, it, what is it about the means that's so powerful? Well, I think in some sense, the means is really all we have, you know, like that's like we're constantly all we do is live through the means. And these we put up the end as a thing that's that's going to it's what we're striving for. But I get that my my point is that we're not really striving for that. What we're we do, the end is a kind of is just there in a perfunctory way to drive us to do what we're doing. You know, so the fact that the podcast actually appears, I mean, I don't think you could do what you do if it didn't ever appear. Right. But that that's in some sense, that's incidental to what to the satisfaction that you get from doing it. Right. Yeah. I, I Yeah. But there's a I wish I, I had this specific quote that you say it a couple of you write it a couple of times in the book, more or less that if that that valuing the means ha, is is kind of inherently anti-capitalist i i some some kind no, of no i absolutely believe that yeah 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 because you know like the whole point i mean i think that's that i think i quote that marx uh, sorry that line from marx is from volume two of capital at the, in the i think it's in the conclusion i quoted that he says once we recognize that enjoyment not accumulation is our goal then capital we're already beyond capitalism right or something like that is a rough quotation. And I thought that was just such an amazing idea. And I, I, I mean, and, and I feel like that's, that's the same kind of thing, you know, that like once we recognize that we're not trying to like, I think without the idea of accumulation, which is, which is end, which is an end always mm-hmm. that you can't, you can't be a capitalist subject. You know, right. you just can't, you're just not tempted by it. And, you know, I don't think I'm like a great radical or anything, but I just have like someone could offer me a million dollars to go across the street. I just wouldn't do it. It's just, you know, I just it just wouldn't. It's just no, there's no temptation in that. 
right? Like I'm, I'm busy. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, I, you know, I I'm doing to, something I enjoy. <laughs> right. I'm reading a, I'm reading a little Leibniz right now. I'm not going to get up and I don't want your million dollars. So I feel like once you like that, that, that idea that, that of the end, I think is utterly correlated to the capitalist schema. And without it, there's no, there's no psychic motivation to, to, to invest yourself in it. Right. Right. Um, I, I think in the book also, t- I mean, takes up this idea about, um, privacy and publicity or, or, or the, the public. And you say some, you say some interesting things that I'm not sure. Um, um, I mean, they're, they're, they're important. I think good to chew on. Um, here's a, here's a nice quote. The satisfaction of the subject depends on its exposure to the public. The public world disturbs the psychic equilibrium of the subject, but this disturbance is the source of the subject's satisfaction. Now, my more like regressed patients, you know, more psychotic patients are, are blocking out, right? right? They're defending against the incursion of, of this public. But we seem to be living, and I think you argue this as well, in a time where um, privacy is um, – is is being exalted and it and it I think you have the idea that it places us at at risk. Um can you can you talk about yeah. the importance of of the public and the the threat of the private? Yeah, for sure. Uh it's a, I think I said do I say this in the book or did I edit it out that psychoanalysis kind of is is the sort of Ertzatz public Oh state. yeah, you have, you have a beautiful I mean your your description of what psychoanalysis does in in a book that has a critique of capitalism is amazing because so many people oh. say analysts it's the ultimate, you know, display of capitalism and I'm right. like mm, yes no, and no. Yeah, I mean I can see how that's said but I I don't that's not my position but uh it's it just from the perspective of a patient I never is you know I've never been an analyst but uh uh yeah, I mean, I feel like the that drive toward toward privacy. I mean, I feel like it's interesting because the the Trump election seems to have at least uh, you know ostensibly got people much more engaged in a, in a public you know and, and this this idea that I need to engage people that don't have the same viewpoint as me. And for me, that's one of the things that defines the public. So to to me, all these like Facebook, all these things that allow you to just define your own public are not really a way of defining a public. They're a way of retreating into privacy. So it seems like more and more that the, the impulse is to privacy. And we, even though there are these countercurrents, it's pretty tough to fight against that. That just I want to just be surrounded by things that that, you know, confirm my own ideal ego or something without any kind of uh anything that's, that's, that's running counter to that, which is, that's how I, I guess that's how I define the public that you're exposed, you know, you're exposed to desires that you would, and other people's fantasies that you'd rather not be exposed to. Right. Right. And other, you can't control. Yeah. Um, In that sense, public is like love. I think, I think in a kind of, in a weird way, I mean, not in a weird way. I think uh it definitely is. Yeah. No, that, that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I, I have a, ser- a series of short little questions called plaintive questions. Okay. okay. <laughs> so I, I have one. Um, uh, so we are not self-interested. There we go. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, yeah, that's my that's my claim that that actually it takes. And now that, that was sort of what I was going to say earlier in answer to your question about socialism. Like, if we were self interested, we'd already be socialist. I feel like, like I feel like Marx's error is to think that people would always act self interestedly. And like, if if you think about it, the people that act the most unself interestedly are the most rapacious capitalists because they're not, you know, they're, they're not even, they're serving some other kind of master, not their own, even they're not, they're not even giving themselves pleasure. They're just, you know, doing what capital is demanding of them. Right. Right. So I think it's very hard to act in yourself. And like, think about the environment, like why it seems so evidently in our self-interest to do something. Mm-hmm. But we just we can't seem to we can't seem to do anything. It's a right. It's a it, yeah. it is a perfect example. And in fact, Siunam, another host on New Books and Psychoanalysis, will be interviewing Donna Orange on her um, another analyst who's written about sort of you know climate change and um, the uh, you know why why we don't do anything. Yeah. What pleasure does it give us to? Um, I mean the pleasures of, of destruction are right. I think that's a big thing. I think that it's very pleasurable to destroy the earth. I think that's a, that's a huge thing to try to overcome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for, for the environment. And I, I don't think a lot of people have taken that into account because they just assume, of course we want to preserve things, but I think there's something very enjoyable about like deep water horizon oil spill and things like, like, I think, you know, like that, why, why, when Sarah Palin says drill, baby drill, and people are going berserk. I mean, why are they going berserk? Because I think precisely for that, you know, no one goes berserk because she said solar panel, solar panel, solar panel. No one would be, I mean, even if someone on the left did that and people wouldn't go crazy in the same way. That's true. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's. I don't know. There's something about the pleasures of um, of of destruction, of self destruction. You know that, um, like, like we all want happiness. You know. Oh, yeah. We all want happiness, but we also are really engaged in in ruin and ruin yeah. of of our own uh, lives. <laughs> yeah. Know? I mean, I always think like try to ruin it in the least destructive way possible. <laughs> right, because it's going to get ruined. That's sort of my goal. But. <laughs> that's a good goal. I like that goal. It's sort of like how ruin it in the you know because it, it's it's happening. You know, it's happening as as we um, as we speak. Um, yeah. It's because it can't it can't go on, right? What did you say about death? Is like you know, capitalism just cannot tolerate that. Like, there's death. Yeah. <laughs> I know there was this. It's amazing because the the. I, there's a, a lot of books you wouldn't you'd be surprised on on the impact that the heat death of the unit the, the discovery of the heat death of the universe mm-hmm. had on capitalist theorists like they were just traumatized by it right but even more even even Engels was too so there's there's you can see how for Marxism obviously too that would be that would be a disturbing <laughs> idea yeah 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 no, definitely um I have another sort of plaintive question. Okay. So you write, when we practice self-reflection, we pay attention to our conscious intentions rather than to the signifiers we employ unconsciously. My question is, so meditation won't cure us? Yeah. I, I wonder how you as an analyst would, would – I mean, I, that I love was that. Really, it's, 
It's yeah. an advertisement for psychoanalysis. I know. I know. I mean, I really feel like, uh, you know, this, I, I mean, this is where I, I, I mean, in a lot of ways I see certain philosophy and psychoanalysis going hand in hand, but this is where I think psychoanalysis has says something that philosophy doesn't say this idea that you need that, you know, that reflection, there's a certain limit to reflection just, just based upon where your attention is directed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to speak in front of another is to is to meet with your public, right? To meet the public, and and also even worse, a public that kind of knows knows that you're hiding something, right? So, right, you know, right. And it's ready to kind of point out the where you're where where it's exposed. Yeah, it's always my my task is to um, keep patients of uh, giving them the feeling that I really don't know anything, and they actually do all the work they need to do, um, right. As right. long as I, as long as they have that feeling that I'm behind them, I'm not in front of them. Right. Um, so, uh, I was thinking about who. Um, there's a lot of people who don't satisfy you in this book. I wanted to say that you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, um, yeah, Kant. Uh huh. Well, mm, uh, sort of, but oh, Marx. Uh, mm, uh. So, so I was feeling your disappointment. Okay. Um, and the. Um, but then I had I I had the idea that there were two um, two uh, thinkers um, who who really um, satisfied you. Um, so I don't know, like, were there two that satisfied you more than the rest? <laughs> sure, sure, that's an easy question. Um, Hegel and Freud. Okay. Or you thought I would say Hegel and Lacan, maybe? No, I thought you were going to say <laughs> Hegel for sure, because um, you're right. I mean, it's really terrific, um, uh, you know, what, what your argument around Hegel. But I actually thought um, uh, uh, Ma- Matthew Weiner, Don Draper. Uh, oh, <laughs> that's, that's great. I didn't. I, I was only thinking of thinkers that I, I changed my answer to. Yes, I think you're exactly right. <laughs> Hegel and Don. I mean, I that when that show came on where he defined happiness, <laughs> I mean, I was just. In fact, my, my a good friend of mine said, "Okay, scrap the whole book, write it all on Mad Men." Yeah, you yeah. know, that's. The I thing. think there's a logic to that. Like, there's it's there's something really amazing about Draper and about that series. So yeah, yeah. And the the quote is, "What is happiness? It's a moment before you need more happiness." <laughs> <laughs> he's 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 at that point. He's trying to bag a client that he's never been able to get yeah you know and so it's any and i don't think he's ultimately successful but it's still such a great <laughs> moment I, I i i feel so divided about that series because i so wanted it to end when he took his kids back to the brothel where he was raised oh yeah and he said this is this is like what this is what i am and then that's just and then that that was that season ended yeah i thought wow that would be a pretty great ending but yeah and then I feel like the, I, 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 I love the ending as it is now when it goes to the Coke commercial, but I, I feel like it's slightly cynical, you know, yeah. that, it, you know, and so I wish, I guess I, I guess I'm a little more naively optimistic than, than Matthew Weiner. Right. Right here. I mean, I, I actually agree with you that I really thought that that was a perfect place to end right in front of the old whorehouse. I was like, here it is kids. Yeah. <laughs> This is what I, this is the basis of everything that I, yeah. <laughs> this is, this is me. And let's look for, there's, there's no name of the father here, baby, but there's a lot of mothers. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, and then, and then, so 
I think the series by going on, it, it creates the illusion that there's no outside to this, you know, and I, right. I, I think there is an outside, but the outside is only through this like space where there is, as you just as you exactly said, there's no name of the father, right? Right, right. It's a totally quite, quite a different, um, quite a different order. Um, oh, gosh, let's see. So many things. Um, I was. Oh, there's so much. All right, you write about sacrifice. Yeah, and um, it's something that happens in private. It's something you know. Lab- our labor is secreted away, um, and you write about um, that consumers, at some level, we demand sacrifice. Yeah. Um, can you what what is what is that? Uh, what is you know what is how from let's say a Lacanian point of view do you, can you unpack that for us? Sure, I mean it's tied to what I was saying earlier about about loss and lack, and that if there's no ex, no experience with with loss, then the, then there's going to be no satisfaction coming from the the act of consumption. This is why I think it's I think I in the book talk about the difference between like eating broccoli or buying broccoli or buying. I don't know what I, I usually I initially had this is kind of interesting. Maybe I shouldn't reveal this, but um, I initially had it's much more enjoyable to buy a mini skirt than a than broccoli. And and the, the copy editor, true. I think it's true. Yes. The copy editor said, you're this is again, we're blaming Eve for the, all the evils of humanity. <laughs> and, uh, I said, oh, no, no, no. I mean, so I changed it to something else. I don't know, like a piece of cake or something. Well, but, you, uh, you actually gave an example that I think was, um, and I didn't pull the, I didn't pull the quote, but it was the most, one of the most stirring moments in the book um, in which you uh, talk about lace. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's made in Manchester, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, beautiful lace, which would ruin the eyes or something, or, you know, what was it? But it did something to the... Yeah, the, the eyes. These these young young girls, mostly young girls, like very young, six, eight years old, mm-hmm. would work, you know, 12, 14 hours a day, and then they would, they would be blind, you know? Right. But right. they only, they had these hands fine enough to to make it, to man the machine or to, to, to run the machine. So, uh, that's Engels just talks about that in conditions of the working class in England. And, and then I, I sort of move from that to contemporary, like the situation, like the basis for all our phones and computers, you know, mm-hmm. the mining, I actually didn't, it's interesting because the, you know, since I wrote the book, there was a, I think this is since I wrote the book or, or relatively recently, there was a tree. Uh, you know, conflict in conflicts, but uh, but the 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 problem is that the 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 cobalt necessary for the battery for the the phone is right. still mined in Congo by these little incredible, really. Yeah. Uh, and, and and you know, it's so like uh, you know, computer top guys like Tim Cook or Bill Gates, like they're you know they're like lauded as humanitarians, and I just think. It's, <laughs> I don't know. It's funny to me. Like, well, okay, you can be rich, but I don't think you can have that position and be lauded as a good ethical subject. Well, I want to tell you something funny that just happened as you were <laughs> as you were talking about Apple. I believe the, yeah. the Skype actually went out for like a second. I said, "Oh my God, we've just <laughs> lost the connection." 
<laughs> and I said, shit, we better go back to the lace. Like, we better go back to the 19th yeah, century. Yeah, let's talk about 19th century. That, <laughs> let's, talk, that'll be let's talk about the lace. Get away from Apple. <laughs> uh, I know. I'm, I'm actually on an Apple computer right now. Yeah, so. me, I mean, me too. And it, yeah. there's my little iPhone, you know. It's, it's, you don't even have to advertise this stuff. I mean, you know, we're just getting it anyway. Yeah. But. Can we? I just I wanted I wanted underline just for so people can uh, can get it when you talk about this lace and about like how important sacrifice is right and these you know small these little girls lose their eyesight you then write something um, no leaf or flower picked off the ground could ever be similarly valued yeah and I thought well that is just I mean what could be more like lace than a leaf or, you know, or, or a flower on the ground. And yet there's no human, uh, there's no sacrifice. No sacrifice. Yeah. I mean, I, what's Yeah. I mean, I, I hate that. And then I wrote it, I know, but, uh, uh, I feel like that that's that, that, so for me, sacrifice is necessary sort of on both ends. Like we enjoy commodities for which we sacrifice more like food. That's bad for us. Mm-hmm. Much enjoyable than food that's good for us but we also enjoy or find satisfaction in the sacrifice that goes into the to the object like the lace yeah 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 sure um now you write about fundamentalism in the book in a very interesting way um as the the fundamentalist is a is a very a disaffected um consumer um of of sorts i it would be it would be great to get this your your thinking um, sort of just out there into the ether yeah. about the relationship yeah. between capitalism, the, the how the commodity fails, and uh, and and fundamentalism. Sure, sure. So my idea is that the you're confronted with this. Everyone is confronted with this failure of the commodity, and the fundamentalist, rather than saying, "Oh, I'm going to just accumulate, fi- find a better commodity," because this one didn't work. The fundamentalist says, look, I'm going to I'm going to find this, this, all this sacrifice that seems to go into the commodity. It's just a faux sacrifice. There's no real sacrifice going mm-hmm. on here. So I'm going to really uh, find somewhere where I can really have some some authentic sacrifice. So I think that's where that's why fundamentalism seems so appealing. But in some sense, I think I think I say this in the last line of that chapter. It's whatever chapter. It's like a. It's a misreading of, of cap- like there really is sacrifice. Like capitalism itself is already in some sense fundamentalist. And so I think I say you don't have to crash a plan to building, just buy an iPhone and you've already participated in the same kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So I, we're just we're soon to be out of time. Um, I wanted to ask you throughout the book, you know, you make the argument that capitalism needs scarcity. Yeah, to keep itself afloat, right? And um, and so also you argue: Do we, do all humans, need the sense of lack in order to keep going? So are we doomed to, to capitalism? Yeah, yeah. No, because I think I think the I think the great just to me the great insight of psychoanalysis is that scarcity and abundance or lack and excess actually can you know, they actually coincide. And I think the, 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 the failure or the refusal or the inability to recognize that is sort of what makes capitalism, if I could just be that crude. But I feel like that's 
that's sort of the basic structure behind it. But I think, you know, if you're able to recognize the way those two coexist and depend on each other, then I think then then that then I think you're outside of the structure of capitalism. You don't need it. You can you know, you can you can imagine other way. I mean, I think it's very hard to imagine. I don't have any of this kind of like magic solution that's some some other kind of system. But I do feel like, you know, some some development of the necessity of the public and some emphasis on the public like that to me would be the most radical the, you know, one of the most important and radical transformations that we could have. It's a, it's a very, it's a really, it's a very compelling um, argument in, in the book. Um, I, it, I guess to close, I wanted to share with you something that uh, sure. an analyst, uh, an old analyst of mine who ran the Institute from which I graduated, she used to kind of terrorize the place. She would like stand up by saying the following um, sort of casually, so there would be like a case presentation, and um, you know, she was a she was a terrific uh, woman and very funny and very bright. And um, but she would sometimes say, "Well, Mister So and So, don't you know that everyone already has what they want?" And as I read your book, I thought, "Well, this is." It, it seemed that there was something very similar um, to what you're arguing that the dis that the lost, you know, object or the the thing that that's missing sort of sets us up at, at sort of like getting comfortable with your symptom. Perhaps it might be a Lacanian way um, yeah. to do, to uh, to describe it. But uh, any thoughts about this idea that everyone already has what they want? Yeah, I think I, I don't want to be I don't want to be associated with the old terrorist, but I kind of I feel like that's probably no, she was she was a lot of fun and she was Irish. I don't know. If, oh, but yeah. I don't know if you're Irish or Scottish. I am Irish. Yeah. Me yeah. too. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I feel I I, I mean, ob- look, I, obviously there are people who are in material need, but that's just different than desire. And so I think. um I think that I, I totally agree with what she said. I feel like once you and once you understand that, then then you, then it's I, I mean, I'm tempted to say that dissatisfaction is ideological, you know, like that's the way capitalism. And and that I think when you asked me before, like, what's the to talk about the difference between Marcuse, Brown, earlier mm-hmm. psychoanalytic critiques of capitalism, like they were all about how capitalism is. The problem is it's it's doesn't really satisfy us. But I, and, and my my point is, well, then you've kind of fallen for the ideology of capitalism. Right. If she think that. Right. So I, I, I love what she said. That's that. that that's, oh, yeah. No, it, it, it. But it would, you know, create in people a discomfort like, wait, but I haven't had the child. I haven't this, the, that. I haven't, you know, ba, ba, ba. And yet that, you know, we unconsciously we arrange for things, yeah. you know, um, yeah. and you know, from the point of view of psychoanalysis, I mean, that's a, that's, that's the position. Um, but I think like the beauty of your book is that you maintain that position while talking about capitalism. And I, I really hope that, um, you know, the, the, uh, kind of anti-capitalist, um, activists that are out there, I mean, can get a hold of your book and wrestle with it. Well, that's, um, that's nice of you. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cause I mean, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot, um, you know, there's a lot to be wrestled with um, now. Um, I've had, some people have been very critical because it's too, you know, it's too, uh, I don't know what, like psychic or something. Not, 
Like there's not really, it doesn't lay out a nice plan. It's for, not, not enough base superstructure. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, you know, if you look, look more, look more closely. And, uh, you, I think that there is a lot of base and superstructure, but more at the level of, of the psyche. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I love what you said, by the way, about unconscious. I mean, I feel like so much of our conscious life is designed to hide like what we're arranging unconsciously. Yeah. I mean, that's a banality, I know. But it's a, (laughs) but it, but it's a, it's a banished, it's a banished banality, you know, when we, with the idea that we can know ourselves and that we can act in our own best interests. Um, Right. You know, I mean, I think about what I've already done in the past week, not in my best interests. So, you know, (laughs) I I actually, I don't know if I talk about this in the book, but I, I ran myself into like multiple pneumonias and I, (laughs) In this attempt to like become, I don't know what it was, what an attempt to come fit, just the idiocy. But do I, right, right. Yeah, yeah. do I have to die to say right. these things? Then I'll prove that I'm really, I, I'm really fit. Right, right. Yeah. What yeah. will it take? How yeah. how much is enough? So, yeah. all right. So we're gonna have to bring this uh, this uh, delightful interview to a close, um, listeners. Um, please uh, feel free to um, write in your comments as always. Um, to um, the website, um, we have um, room for that, and we always look forward to hearing uh, from you. Um, I'm actually not sure who I'm going to interview next. Usually I say, um, but I'm looking at a bunch of um, different um, different publications, one uh, perhaps on um, uh, the use of the term experience in psychoanalysis, but I can't remember even the title right now. That's how it goes. Anyway, Todd McGowan, thank you so much for being with us. We look forward to your next book. And um, Thanks for having me. I just... Absolutely. Okay. Goodbye, everybody.